Podcast 093, Urban Permaculture with Jeff Lawton. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. I'm not wearing any pants. <laughs> I, well, and, and I've eaten I've eaten more than half of a pie. So this is pumpkin pie. I I think this is a good breakfast pie. Um, like like it's not like as opposed to a dessert pie where it's much sweeter. I agree. This is like a breakfast pie. So it'll it'll be. But I'll, I've I've already had four helpings of breakfast this evening. <laughs> so um, we just got done watching. What did we watch? Urban permaculture. Urban permaculture with, with Jeff Lawton. And I'm you know the guy is. I I thought he was really cool. I mean I I like hearing him talk. I like seeing him talk. And of course I can't. And the whole time I'm watching this, I keep thinking to myself. This this is the greening the desert guy, and, and it's like really what this is what it, what I feel like what we're watching is is him trying to teach people in cities how to how to do the greening the desert thing in the cities. So now I think we should go around the room and everybody should say who they are and stuff like. That. So of course I'm I'm Paul Wheaton. Uh, my name is Kane Jameson. I'm Jocelyn Campbell. Leisha Lynn Bailey. All right, and so um, I, I brought the, the, the dream team together, um, um, mostly because they're local, and I know each one of them has a certain aspect of urban permaculture um, that they are passionate about. So, so Kane, you just got a brand new place, and I know I was out there, and uh, we were figuring out how to strategize. And I know you've been—I've seen you've been posting a lot of pictures and stuff about what you've been doing so far this year yes. and getting your urban permaculture thing done. Yes, and uh, you have a PDC, right? Yep. So I was doing my PDC at the same time this year, uh, right around the time we moved into the house in March. Uh, and we started the PDC in May. So I did my permaculture design course with Toby Hemingway here in South Seattle. And then we're writing about our conversion of our urban permaculture homestead at seattlehomestead.com. So that is a little insight into what I'm doing right now. And as an added note, you you also put together my um, podcast and blog stuff so people could get to that because yeah. that's that's kind of your day job. Yes, I'm a web designer and website manager and work with a few permaculture people actually, including RichSoil.com and the Permaculture Podcast. So. So, so you're permaculture savvy, and you do web junk. Yes, yes. There's not many of us. <laughs> and Jocelyn, of course, has been on many of my podcasts, and she does quick. Is it QuickBooks? Is that right? Yeah, accounting and QuickBooks. And a lot of your clients are all very eco too. You do a lot for wineries and, and stuff like that. Well, and and a tilth organization and a CSA farm and a natural builder. So I enjoy supporting local economies and small businesses. 
businesses. And I know that when it comes to permaculture stuff, that I remember we built a great big box to put out of your place, and and, and you you kind of had your balcony area, and you were very tiny. But now you've moved recently, and you have a lot more play space. Right, right. So yeah, a lot of my systems I had to put on hold um, because of construction at my condo, and um, but I am looking forward to getting those back. <laughs> and Alasia, um, uh, I I knew. We, we met at an edible, uh, wild edibles walk. Weed thing. Uh, we, yeah, wild weed walk, edible walk. Edible weeds or something like that with Arthur Lee Jacobson. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, and then I remember running into you again later at the, uh, I think it was the 2009 uh, Northwest Permaculture Convergence, and uh, you were doing something on goats, and you asked me to go and sit in with you, and uh, I'm not sure why, but but I, but I went, and and uh, I don't know there was like a I don't know a dozen people there or so. Yeah, I think actually a little more than that. And I think I asked you to sit in because you said a number of things sort of, if I might say, anti-goat. And I thought that would make for good discussion and have some legitimate points of view. There's a lot of misunderstandings about goats. And like anything, a lot of misapplication of goats to the wrong situation. And I know that uh, I've got a picture of your operation on my chicken article uh, because you're doing the uh, the urban paddock shift systems that I advocate. Absolutely, right. I use dog X pens and bamboo woven through different kinds of wire, everything from the green sort of plastic construction hardware cloth wire to all kinds of different uh, fencing sorts of systems that I use for moving them around. They have access to trees and shrubs all the time. I also do use little tractors, which I know you're not a big fan of, but I actually use them on my lawn as urban pasture. So I have urban pastured poultry. Now, this is this is your chance to, to plug what you do. I mean, as far as, like, you know, uh, uh, more income-y things, I suppose. You know, so we've got the, the web guy, we've got the accountant woman, and we have... Oh, I see. Well, I guess I'm on my third or fourth career then. <laughs> um, uh, my first undergraduate degree was an engineering degree. I went on to graduate school in computer science, worked in that industry for over a decade. I've always been a passionate plants person. I still have descendants of plants I've had since I was four or five years old. And so com- sort of combining a lot of those things into horticultural systems and organic things that was different than what I saw a lot of other people do. And I did grow up on a farm that was pretty much off the grid and what have you, so I couldn't wait to get to the city. Now I'm taking a lot of that knowledge and these other knowledge and experiences, and permaculture started giving me a language to put some of that together and take some of those disparate pieces and connect them a little bit. So now I consider myself a permaculturalist. I do have a lot of garden design clients that are slowly getting into edibles without them even knowing it in many cases, and they're discovering it and enjoying it. And um, my own garden right now is pretty goat-centric. I do have urban dairy goats, and I'm looking at urban pasture alternatives, vertical pastures. I'm having a lot of fun weighing and measuring the truckloads of things that I bring from clients and that I grow, and we'll be spending a lot of winter days data mining some of that. 
All right. So, uh, and, and I know that every once in a while on Permies, you'll post something where somehow somebody had like a big gob of extra plants, and then they said, "Here, Leisha, give them away appropriately," and and then you'll be trying to give them away appropriately and struggling over what does appropriate mean and and trying to do the right thing, and it seems like oh, suddenly you took on an extra eighty hours of unpaid work to help others. You're such a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? I think I'll go back to my previous topic, and I'm twittering about goats. I'm at Goat Guild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now you know Twitter better than I do. you got to teach me the, the Twitter because I don't, I'm haven't seen a lot, I'm having a lot of fun with Twitter. Facebook is just too much. It's overloaded. But Twitter's been manageable for me, and the Goat Guild tag that I have on Twitter is pretty appropriate for what I'm doing and all the different things that I work it into. So... I've been combining a lot of um, with a lot of other gardeners and some landscapers and recycling waste from our clients' gardens. So there was one week in particular where there were four of us that were working on the same street, and we combined loads. And so instead of four trucks going to Clean Green, only one truck went and only one trip, and there was a total of seven truck trips saved. And all of that got turned into yogurt and compost. So at this point in time, as I'm eating yet another piece of pie, I'm reminded how somebody sent me email, I believe I got it this morning, where they were complaining about the quality of one of my podcasts and how I really need to improve the quality. And so, um, and, and to this person, I have to say, this is my pie, and I'm eating pie. And I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes talking about me eating pie. Just because... Just because I started making podcasts because I was told that the quality expectation would be utterly zero, and clearly this person is not one of those initial people and doesn't yet understand how quality can be at zero. And so the fact that you can still understand what I'm saying shows that I have a lot of room to lower the bar. So, <laughs> well, I, I'm getting tired of people telling me all the things I need to do, like buy all these fa- all this fancy equipment. I'm not going to buy that crap, and and then I need to do all these fancy things to mush the thing around after, and you know, screw that. Why don't? Here's what that need. They need to go make a damn podcast, and then they go and take gather up this information and then they put it out, and then I'll just stop doing it, you know. So I'm doing this because nobody else is, apparently. So um, uh, they've obviously tuned into the wrong podcast. All right, so. The movie. All right, we just watched the movie. Wow, we watched the movie. And that's what we're here to talk about, what we just watched. Now, the first thing, at the very beginning of, of, of the DVD, um, urban permaculture. Jeff Lawton seemed to be on quite a rant about lawns, mm-hmm. and in fact, we were we were kind of talking a little bit before the podcast, and we finally agreed. You know what? We have to start the podcast. First note is lawn rant. Lawn rant. Okay, yeah, yeah. I called it a diatribe. 
We, I, I, the, the overall summary of the video is, is it seems like Jeff Lawton is, is gearing up to do, uh, to do television, like to get his own television show. And this, and, and I do think that he's got the, um, the personality. It really did have that flavor to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It feels like this is, this is the pilot for his new television series. Um, something permaculture with Jeff Lawton or something I, and and uh, uh, and he visits a whole bunch of places and he designs some stuff and and it just felt like an hour and a half long television show and so um, uh, that was that was the feeling and he started off ranting against lawns and um, <clears throat> minus the it was minus the guitar riffs though on all those home improvement shows where they're actually doing the work and they do like a whole day's worth of work and it's like condensed into like three minutes on the television show and there's always the guitar riff during that oh. speed it up part I'm missing that oh right right <laughs> next episode yeah. yeah he had a little more substance I think but he started off ranting on lawns. He, taught, he mentioned the thing about the Taj Mahal, um, and, and that's where – now, he's saying it's the earliest recorded case. I'd like to find out what date that is because I always kind of thought that it started with the, with the French, but um, maybe – The earliest lawn, you're saying. The earliest lawn, yeah. And, and basically the idea is to say, look how fucking rich I am. Right. I, can, I can send all my slaves and servants out there with scissors and and they'll make it look all perfect and they'll pull out everything that isn't exactly like all the other blades of grass and in the end it is evidence of my massive wealth and then everybody else tried to emulate that and we're still trying to emulate it to this day and and he makes a lot of good points and I've heard the point so many times the smelly lawnmowers, the chemicals, the the uh, fertilizers, all the different kinds of goos and gunks that they spray on their lawns. And, and of course, they're not put on uh, appropriately, which leads to all kinds of toxins ending up in our groundwater. And it's it's just, it's a really a big problem. Now, on the on on the flip side, I wrote the article 15, 16, 17 years ago uh, about um, uh, lawn care, and I'm I'm a, a power advocate of the mowable meadow, I, I think that permaculture can have something resembling a lawn without any toxins and with far less work. And you don't, and, and there's, there's even, water I've, I've even designed something in such a way that you can have, have it be green all year and never water it. Yeah, and I, I, I want to play devil's advocate here for a second and say that I really enjoy my lawn as a place for my friends to camp in the summer, as a place to play with the animals, whether it's the baby goats, the dogs, have people over, have classes. It's a photosynthesizing gathering space. And I think lawns serve a valuable function there. Now, I haven't put any fertilizer or water onto my lawn in many, many years. And you can do that. So the lawns, for the sake of just, you know, green space to show off, that's different to me than functional lawns. And I don't think that we should be... Racist against grass. Specious. <laughs> Specious. Against grass. You know, I think again. I mean, 
we talk in permaculture that we shouldn't have any sacred cows. Well, anti-lawn shouldn't be a sacred cow either. There are lawns that serve functional purposes. I have a little spot of lawn out on what he calls the nature strip, parking strip, planting strip, whatever. I do have one little section of lawn out there. And it's this neighborhood gathering place. And it's also the place where, you know, if I want to wash lawn furniture or something, that's occasionally where I will do that sort of thing out there. It's a great place for other landscapers, gardeners, neighbors to drop off loads of stuff for the goats to eat, you know. And it's photosynthesizing at the same time, which is a heck of a lot better than hardscape would be. I think when you got children destroying the inside of your house, this way they can go and destroy the lawn. <laughs> Get out! <laughs> Get out! Go hurt each other outside! And uh, uh, yard sales, um, uh, little picnics. Driveways are for. Uh, there's, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that I think a lawn, uh, a lawn really facilitates. A lawn really facilitates community, and so I, I, it has its place. And he, and, and and granted, while everything he said is absolutely true and accurate, I I, I would like to ask permaculture folks to kind of have a, a place for either a lawn or something lawn-like. I think you can have your edibles planted in your lawn. Also, there's there's diversity that you can have. A mowable meadow is the way Toby Hemingway described it. Yeah, I think there's a big difference between a farm functional lawn and a ornamental lawn. Yeah, the ornament. I mean, throughout the whole video, we saw ornamentals being not eliminated, but reduced. Less, less, yeah, optimized. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I think early on when he's talking about lawns, or, or maybe towards the end of the lawn rant, he says, nature doesn't have any lawns, but it does have savannas and prairies and meadows. And the difference is those are maintained by animals in another natural system. And lawns, we've removed that natural system and created right. a bunch of work for ourselves. And right. chemical dependence. So if we can go back to savannas and prairies and meadows just fine and quit doing all the extra work and using all the chemicals, that's the permaculture approach. Right. I, I kind of like the idea. You know, I, I like to think, and in this previous videos, a big part of it is, is like, okay, we're going to create a system, and once it's created, we can totally walk away. And, and it'll produce food. We can either take the food or leave it. And if we come in and we monkey with it, we can we can increase production, but or or we can just let it idle, and it'll it'll still produce plenty of food, and we don't do anything. And and um, the lawn picture typically says, and now you've committed to a lifetime of work. And uh, you're going to have to go out there at least once every few weeks and do something with it. And According to Wikipedia, that started in 1526 at the Taj Mahal with the first garden that had a lawn. Okay. Well, I, wa I wonder when the French first started doing it, but 1526. All right, so 500 years ago, roughly. Well, as after he finished up ranting about lawns, he was trying to move into saying, in urban areas, we need to grow our own food there. And he had a bunch of things he was throwing out on what he thought, how much food we could produce in urban spaces. And, and he had this one um, phrase that I, I thought was was kind of interesting. Urban foodscapes are the future of humanity. So this is this is where he was going with, okay, get rid of the lawns in an urban place, we have to grow food. So. 
I I liked that, and at the same time, I thought he said something. And I was kind of tempted, and it's like I know Lacia wanted to stop it and back it up like forty times, and it's like just just sit there and be quiet, Lacia. Lacia, Lacia likes to get things right. Paul. <laughs> and, <laughs> I that sometimes. And so, so there was a point in time where I'm like, wait a minute, did he just say what I thought he said? And I thought what he said was something like, uh, if if you just if you if you just grow stuff on the parking strips then you you have fed everybody i thought he said something like that i'm thinking no and i don't remember him saying that yeah exactly i think early on i i started quibbling with a line here and a line there and about a third of the way through i realized you know this is a big wide view approach to what can be done in an urban setting with a permaculture approach and Nothing in this video is, you know, super in depth on any particular particular topic. So, you know, we can't. I I kind of got too much. I kind of got a similar feeling. I I kind of got the like I was prepared. I was like I was really excited, right. uh, salivating, like almost as if there was pie in the room. Um, and and <laughs> I, I was uh, I I and I'm kind of like okay now now Jeff is going to totally save the world, and he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna make it. So and then I and then as I'm watching it, I'm kind of thinking this seems really watered down. And and then I I think that maybe what it is is that he's so here we are, all of us have taken a permaculture design course, and um, um, we've we've moved way past that level. I think I think that what he's doing here is he's 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 putting out something to help get people who are just hearing about the word permaculture for the first time, drawing to draw them in. And and so while my expectation was like. You know, I was I was expecting something advanced because he's advanced. He's one of the big heroes. Right. You know, greening the desert guy. He's gonna and, it, and he's doing it in Sydney, Australia. Now, I don't know a lot about the geo. Well, what do I? I don't know a lot of geography for anywhere really. But um, isn't that a desert? I mean, I know I talked to my friend Andrew Monkhouse, the guy who helped out with the forums at at Permies. He uh, he's from uh, Australia, Melbourne, I think, and and it sounds like it's just one great big desert across the whole continent. And you know, when it gets hot, they're talking about something like 120, 130, and um, so uh, I mean, everything's really, really different there. Um, whereas we're trying to come up with strategies to extend our seasons and have less, and and you know, beat back the frost. They're like, no, bring on the frost. How can we, you know, capture some cold, you know? And and so it just it just seems like the challenges are different. Um, I, I'm I'm kind of feeling like, and it, that's another thing too, is I'm kind of feeling like while it's an urban permaculture thing, it's an urban permaculture thing for Sydney or places like Sydney. Yeah, the other aspect of that I noticed was there was a lot of species-dependent commentary where you talk about this particular type of fruit for this setting and things like that, and I think they were all good examples, but just like the big black book of permaculture, you, you can't apply it. Well, it, he did say quite a few times it was either they were species for the tropics or the subtropics, <laughs> sometimes yeah. into temperate, but it was definitely tropics and subtropics. Which is aligned with greening the desert. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so Lacia's trying to... Yeah. I didn't think he mentioned that enough times. I, and I, I, I just, I was kind of laughing at one point because somebody, he was kept talking about the sun on the north side. 
right. and I had somebody at some permaculture event arguing with me about this, and they were just they were in some permaculture class, and they were just adamant that they knew it all, and they were going to be a designer, and blah blah blah, and they were talking about the sun on the north side, and I, you know I couldn't help myself, and I kind of said, "Have you ever done anything?" <laughs> well, if you did something in Australia, then yeah, yeah that, exactly. it does work that way. So yeah, I guess I was hoping for something a little more. Global is not the right word. Universal. It, w- it was very specific, so I just think it should be titled Urban Permaculture for Tropical Southern Hemisphere or something. <laughs> well, short I that. feel like the Greening the Desert guy, totally okay to do strictly tropic, subtropic plants because he's the Greening the Desert guy. I mean, he's, this is a place where the world really desperately needs to be saved. So totally legit to be like that. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with that. I do believe that he could probably come to the cooler climates and do awesome stuff. But I, I also kind of feel like his super-duper expertise superpowers are in the really hot places. Well, what he ended up doing is touring a bunch of gardens. <laughs> And and what I appreciated about the gardens he toured, and, and this is something I'm always pushing in the in our podcast that we've talked about, is quite a few of the places he visited were very aesthetically appealing. And and I think there's a lot of permaculture places that are not so aesthetic, not in the normal aesthetics, more in a wild or woolly kind of aesthetic or a nature kind of aesthetic. But these were more, several of these were more, would appeal to someone who's just branching out from a suburban look or an urban look because they were aesthetic enough. So, so I appreciated that. And he kind of mentioned some different elements and how you were stacking functions. Um, uh, you know, that very first water-wise foodscape on swales is what he called it, very first house he toured. It was a little on the barren side. You know, but he explained how the water sunk in, and she was so excited because when they had a rainstorm, you know, the water worked as it was supposed to. But it was a pretty barren, you know, foodscape in my – but everything was mulched. And it was later that he mentioned once that you shouldn't have any any, uh, soil left empty, you know, because then that would be a niche that would be filled in perhaps with something you didn't want filled in there. So you should fill in every niche or mulch it. And we had lots of visual examples of that, but not a lot of explanation of that. I think that's a good point. I <clears throat> I was fully prepared to say that it didn't look bushy enough that's a, a lot of the times. But now that you're saying, I mean, something about like, um, it's it's actually a stepping stone into permaculture. Then you're right. I, I think when people and it was put, new, it was new too. So it, a lot of it probably hadn't filled in yet. And there was a lot of that. Some yeah. of, some of the places were a little bit more mature. Right. Um, uh, but um, I, a lot of the feeling that I got was is that yeah, it didn't look bushy enough. Uh, and and but the key is is that a lot of the things that I think look good are are freaky scary to people and would drive them away. But then if somebody is like totally trained on how to make nature your personal bitch and that's what they embrace is what's good, then this then then this video does provide a stepping stone away from that. Well and, and I think there's a good point to that. It's it's the people that are used to a lot of gardening work. I mean if you think about the typical manicured lawn, the typical weeded garden beds, the typical that's a lot of work. 
and and when you're developing a system that's supposed to take care of itself, all of a sudden you don't have gardening to do, <laughs> gardening work to do. So then that's where, like we saw a lot of compost systems, I heard both Laisha and I think Kane commenting on how these different compost systems in these urban lots were like, oh, look at all that work, look at all that, you know, and... And and I think that's a therapeutic outlet for people. They want some of those more labor-intensive systems. <laughs> I just thought, you know, they, they, they're not ready to give that up. Well, isn't, isn't that part of the sort of puritanical American ethic <laughs> where there has to be work involved for it to be valuable? I know that's the farming culture that I grew up in. If you were yeah. sitting around, if you got your work done and you were sitting around, you were in big trouble. So. <laughs> See, now this is what I like about 2000. 2011 and, you know, being me is I want to be, and I, I feel like a lot of these systems, I, I, I look forward to being that lazy. And, yeah. and, and, and I also think yeah. that, that permaculture is basically giving a gift to your future self. Hey, future self, I'm doing this work for you today so you could be a total lazy fucking bastard tomorrow. And, and uh, all you have to do is harvest. You don't have to do anything. And I, and I think you make that sound like the easiest part. And that, that's the hardest part of permaculture because then you have to go out and do all that work. That, that, that is your work, the harvest. The harvest, yeah. You'll be, all this harvest. You'll be harvesting all the damn time. Right. And, and that, is, that is work, and you get tired of washing it sometimes. And, and I honestly, sometimes I miss the marketplace. I mean, when you're harvesting sort of alone in your garden sometimes, sometimes I miss the marketplace. Yeah, my wallet doesn't. <laughs> so, wallet doesn't. of course, with the traditional systems, then, it, then it's like you do, you know, uh, uh, 95% of the work is before the harvest, and 5% of the work is the harvest. Because there's no yield. Now, yeah, because there's hardly any yield. And that was another thing. I was looking at a lot of the systems that we saw. Now, granted, they were really new. And I was kind of thinking, that isn't going to produce much food. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't see much food coming out of what we just saw there. But there were some that were more mature. Mm-hmm. And, and so anyway, now yeah, we should probably move down the list a little bit. One of the things that I saw, or one of the things I heard him say six times throughout this uh, video was fed. And this is the first time I've heard oh, right. fed. Yeah. Uh, and so this is a food hedge, food sedge. And so uh, I, I, I kept, yeah, he used it a lot. I was kind of expecting him to say, sedge. PM, <laughs> you know, like this is a Jeff Lawton word. <laughs> Everybody use it a lot. And then I'm going to ask you for royalties. <laughs> um, hedge, which, um, you know, of course, we've talked about hedges many, many times. The hedges are a big part of permaculture, and they usually do inf- include food elements. And the difference between um, a permaculture hedge and a traditional hedge, the traditional hedges were all one species, and... Um, you would uh, they would basically act as an, uh, a living fence to keep your animals in, and then they evolved to the point that we have now, where they're strictly ornamental. You know, keep the keep the eyeballs of your neighbors out of your stuff is, is its dominant feature, and um, <clears throat> so uh, a permaculture system is going to be using multiple species, a dozen species or more, to make up uh, a fence to keep your animals in, and um, uh, this will be food and and bear. Um, and, and then plus <clears throat> species which support species which support species, so that way it, it's a, a self-sustaining kind of thing. 
I think a hedge, by definition, is an edge, right? Mm -hmm. It's a barrier between two yeah. points, and we're taught to optimize that. So making it a food-productive item is a no-brainer. I mean, um, aren't a lot of classic um, hedgerows hazelnuts? Isn't that a popular one? Mm -hmm. um, it seems like a no-brainer to make that into a more productive space and stack functions out of it. It would be coppicing species. Yes, any, you know, any kind of coppicing. And usually they want to go with something that's thorny. <clears throat> and so, um, but yeah, I wonder, maybe maybe the word edge it actually started off as hedge, but you know, the English, they don't they don't use H's, don't, do they? Just gotta look it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look it up. How's your edge doing, mate? I don't, I mean, that's my uh, well, la lame attempt at an accent. When he did define fedge, he defined it as a food hedge. Mm -hmm. But before he defined it, I was kind of wondering, and I was kind of looking at you guys to see if there was a recognition there, and I didn't see it either. Well. And so I kind of had put fedge, instead of his definition of that he got to, of food hedge, to me, it was food and edge, oh. edge, because he had talked a lot about using edge and how many opportunities the urban environment, the urban infrastructure gives for edge and how powerful that is in permaculture. Like, I like edge and, and I like food. <laughs> I like that also. And he's, he starts out and the whole way through he says food hedge, but just like permanent agriculture eventually became permanent culture, food hedge could become functional hedge. I mean, the point is that we're trying to optimize that space and make it more useful to us rather than a dead space where we throw clippings. Mm -hmm. So, so um, as I was attempting to do an accent earlier, yeah. then then um, there's this there's this uh, comedian. I can't remember his name, but he's from Scotland, and so he he gets up and he he talks. Danny boy, it's Danny boy, and then he, he talks about. So he, the way I'm talking now is a Scottish accent, and so hi, hello, how are you? And it's not an Irish accent, and and this is what an Irish accent uh, sounds like. Um, Fiddle potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> So, that's my that's, that's man. I, I laughed for an hour on that one. I thought that was pretty. And I, of course, I did. I did the joke all wrong, but yeah, we like get the point. But yeah, not like it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's not like we're recording this, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, he had some other. He was real passionate about the urban spaces and then trying to talk about how cool urban spaces are um, and he after the place with the waterwise foodscape on swales that he called it he started walking through a place where there had lots of um, vertical space used along the house and then there were all these hanging pots and then there were uh, all kinds of containers on the patio and then every little tiny corner had stuff planted in it and raised beds and ponds and and he he was he said something I thought was interesting that he thought the more limitations you have, it inspires more creativity. So he was I being, loved that. I yeah. loved that. Yeah, I loved that part. Mm -hmm. And I when somebody gives me a big list of constraints on a design site, that is so much more fun to work out the puzzle of that yeah. than when somebody gives me a blank slate and says, Do whatever you want and that blank 
page essentially is terrifying <laughs> and there's just too many possibilities versus doing the puzzle when you have constraints is a lot of the fun of it. Yeah. I think a big thing is is that while during the show we made comments like that seems like that's going to add work. That's gonna add, you know, but I think another part of it is is basically all the systems we looked at were pure zone one. There, there's no zone two, three, four. So it's oh, like gosh, you know, I didn't. I don't agree with that at all. The especially like the last one, the perma blitz, the last one with the chickens off there and the orchard, and there was another one too where he actually had the zones mapped out a little bit, and he was talking about. Some of the herbs around the house is zone one, and then there was a deck or something, and a zone two beyond that. That's so a good maybe, point. Maybe you were getting another piece of pie. So <laughs> maybe I was, yeah. <laughs> it's like there was this whole pie over there. <laughs> so, uh, no, that's a very good point. On that on that one that had the really large lot, I could see how there's some zone two in that one. But a, a lot of the smaller ones, on the smaller ones, it was like they had a zone one, and it was, it was abutting a zone five. He mentioned that in one of them, and but but the the thought I was having is they were thinking, oh, that's a lot of work, and that one's a- added work, and that one has more work too, and um uh, and my thinking was is it's kind of like well you don't have a zone two, zone three, zone four, so and those usually take up some work, and so you don't you don't have that, and all your time is focused in on your zone one, and and then sometimes what you're going to do is that in order to I mean it, it's kind of like with those food forest systems if you just walk away. They produce food, but if you get in there and you futz with it, you can get you can get it to improve your food production. And so it seems like a lot of the systems that we saw were like, okay, go ahead, get right in there and futz with it, so that way you can improve your. So they had systems designed with futzing in mind in order to have in order to maximize food production. Right. One of them he thought provided plenty of food for two people, the two people that live there, and. Um, and and I couldn't quite see it, but but it wasn't a thorough tour, and I didn't know, you know. But he, you know, it was interesting. And he also made a comment that I found kind of interesting, and I would like to know more of what he meant, where he said, "Microspaces beat big ag." Uh-huh. Do you remember that yeah, comment? He was. That was about productivity per square meter. Right. Yeah. So, in, I mean, intensive gardening systems, sure. whether they're, you know, the Japanese kind of style or the French kind of style, they always are going to beat large scale okay. in vegetables. He kept talking about productivity per meter, per square meter. Yeah. Yeah, okay. he did say something at some point about how big ag is going to be 20 times less productive per square meter. Right. I think, did I get that right, 20 times? He said different things different was, times, but it was always with that emphasis. The, the entire focus was on the... In- intensive aspects of a small space. I mean, the flip side of it is we can't do intensive for many, many properties like Big A can. I'm not defending them by any means, but his point was that we've got this tight space and we should be managing it intensively because we've got the manpower there. Mm-hmm. Right, the manpower per acre is immense. People power no less. Right, right, and and uh, innovation um, and and intelligence to be able to be applied to it also, as opposed to like, oh, let's just follow the standard formula. Let's let's uh, you know deviate from the norm a little bit. Okay. I I wanted I thought uh, a fascinating thing. So we saw 
some stuff about aquaponics, and I'm not a big fan of aquaponics. But then we went, oh, you love aquaponics? Well, you talk about intensive use of space. Intensive use, yeah. It just seems so artificial to me. But then he went into, the thing I liked was the fish and the swimming pool. Yes. There's an awful lot of that that's not going to fly, at least in most American cities, by zoning laws and other things like that. I mean, in the new Seattle Seattle urban ag laws specifically prohibit aquaponics, aquaculture. So... I what well, like you can't. Uh, no. I've, I've toured a couple that are um, in Seattle, and I'm I don't think they're registered, but they're not hidden or gorilla aquaponics setups either. I think the regulation is against aquaponics production for sale within the city limits, but I, I don't think they specifically said that you can't do it. Period. I think it's just they don't want large aquaponics setups within city limits that are focused on providing food to large amounts of people. That's my understanding of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I know there's tons of people doing it. Yeah. You know, and... and uh, so why are you not a fan? I'm, I'm not a fan because it just seems... To me, it seems very artificial, which... which it, I, to me, I love permaculture where it's a symbiotic nudge with nature, and so you're doing something symbiotically with nature. With an aquaponic system, you've got your tanks and your bubblers, and you've got to keep that water circulating, and then you've got to clean the water constantly, and then if the electricity goes out, everybody dies. That was my thought, was he was talking about the incredibly intensive pumping of oxygen into those tanks for the health of the fish, and that was my first thought is, what about the power? I mean, granted, maybe you could run it all off of solar or something, It was. Too, the the system was, he showed were solar. But and, yeah. I mean, when we talk in permaculture about, you know, low-tech or smallest change for greatest effect, I wasn't sure that the aquaponics systems that he was showing were that. They seemed like, let's do it because it's cool. So we saw aquaponics and we saw aquaculture. Now, I'm a big right. fan of aquaculture, and I'm okay. not a big fan of aquaponics. Oh. So in aquaculture... Um, you would say that there's a more of a larger setup, there's going to be fish, and then there's going to be plants, and there's going to be a nutrient cycle. So that's the same as aquaponics in your definition of aquaculture? Yeah. I, I, I would say that we, you know, we saw a cobbled-together aquaculture, and, and we saw a lot more nature's involved. So when that guy said, okay, we've got all the fish out there, and we don't feed the fish anything. Right. The fish eat the bugs that come around. And now we don't have bugs around here no more. And, and so then I'm kind of thinking that that guy's doing aquaculture, mm-hmm. whereas the other guy, clearly they had the fish in tanks. Right. And they're, they're, they have to feed those fish twice a day, and they have to they have to. I mean, the pumps were bigger. I thought in the aquaculture system, they, they the pumps were tiny, mm-hmm. and they weren't doing very much. Now, granted, I prefer an aquaculture system that's going to have a creek. Right. But um, this guy had an urban lot. And um, I'm I'm going to say that that uh, the, the major difference was is that he didn't feed the fish that nature fed the fish. Right. I I should I'm going to point out that in my opinion aquaponics ideally is the same as aquaculture except you've got one pump and just stacking things vertically ideally so that you're pumping up once and then gravity's doing the rest. It's adding the aeration, so that shouldn't be as much of a consideration. I think a lot of the food things that were brought up, um, 
he, he approached it a little within the system as far as fish eating algae and attracting bugs. I think aquaponics done at its best can be very uh, natural, and all you're really doing is inverting the dimensions of the natural system. But that said, most of the aquaponic setups that I've toured have been, um, you know, poorly set up from that perspective where there are excessive pumps, there are bubblers, there are crazy uses of PVC pipes going left and right and all about, and there are, um, they're just not ideally set up from the... They're typically separated from nature yeah. in a big, big way. Right. right. So uh, I think I'm, un see if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly. The difference between aquaculture and aquaponics to you is aquaponics is a lot like hydroponics versus horticulture. They almost always have, aquaponics right. almost always has a hydroponic system as right. part of as a component. Right. Okay. You got something, Jocelyn? No, I was just going to clarify what Kane was saying that he felt that, you know, in an aqua ponic system you could have food in there for the fish to eat. They would nibble on the roots or the algae or whatever. You wouldn't have to feed them externally if you set, design the system correctly. Right. And I think some of that aquaponics has a long way to go and it's not as documented as aquaculture for obvious reasons. People haven't been doing it quite as long. But uh, yeah, I think I think better guilds can be set up that either haven't been discovered or haven't been reported on very heavily. And I also think that um, if we're comparing, for example, big ag versus more intensive uh, small-scale residential systems, aquaponics is really the same thing. If I can grow, um, you know, at an extreme stocking rate, I think uh, a pound of fish per couple gallons, and at a very moderate stocking rate, uh, a pound or two of fish per eight or ten gallons, if I can, you know, have a 150-gallon IBC tank that is growing, you know, 20 or 30 pounds of fish for my home, that that's a huge monetary value to me in a very small space that I might not get from vegetables or other things. And I think that uh, yeah, the fact that you can grow vegetables on top of it is really just taking a very small amount of space and managing it intensively and getting a higher yield from that space. So you, you make a really good point about the yield per square foot. Yield per gallon, um, yield per. Uh, I mean, you know, because you're getting food and you're getting meat and, and all that. And then, and then the thing that the things that bother me about it include <clears throat> the food that you grow there is coming from an artificial system, as opposed to coming from a natural system. Um, and and so then, because a lot of the stuff that I talk about, I mean, there's a lot of people that, that say, oh, in my permaculture system, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and use cardboard, and I'm a, I'm against it. I'm against use of cardboard or newspaper in, in my permaculture systems. So I'm, I'm trying to think of like, and then like in the, in the article about the chickens that I wrote, it's like, okay, I want to I put some care into how, how to, what, what, it, what makes for a good chicken life right. as opposed to like, because right now with a factory chicken farm, you can put them in cages and they shit all over each other and take their beaks off and stuff and you can, you can get more money per effort kind of a thing and those chickens will still grow fast and they'll high, still produce high stocking rates. High stocking rates. Right. Yeah, and so that, so that's kind of like okay. Now I'm kind of thinking: is that good for the 
fish. Now, granted, fish aren't a particularly bright creatures, but I'm still kind of thinking like. Well, the thing is, is that I'm I'm feeling like I don't want to eat the fish that was grown in that. I would prefer mm-hmm. to eat a fish out of an aquaponic system. No aquaculture system than out of an aquaponic system because I mean sure. you're still in a tank and it's through artificial means so we're basically we, we've gone in we've, we've created this artificial environment and we've found that we're able to actually get something that resembles a fish to come out I mean it looks like a fish it tastes like a fish but I am worried about the quality of life that that creature had and the quality of the food that I then ingest when I ingest an animal. Sapolzer talks at great length about the quality of food from from the fish that come from his ponds, and there's there's even speculation and perhaps even evidence about the quality of the food of the fish coming from his ponds versus from local streams and lakes. So, um, you know, and, and I have a lot of curiosity in that space, and I kind of feel like aquaponics is going in a direction that's opposite of the direction that I am curious about. Well, and and I'm just thinking, branching off from that and moving back to more examples in the video. You're so good about that. Well, he, <laughs> he did have examples in the video of more natural um, fish aquaponic setups that um, yeah. they're not vertically stacked, so there's going to be more of a pond, lake kind of aspect to it. Mm-hmm. But um, how that system could be used with fish that had, you know, there's a bottom layer is more like a natural pond and so that was to me really just aquaculture with a fancy drainage system right there were a lot of cool examples but he also showed some intensive raising of chickens and quail and Mm -hmm. rabbits and rabbits with above in little hutches with ducks below and so there were a lot of real real intensive animal urban tractor kind of oh right that it was the quacking rabbits i remember that part (laughs) we're looking at rabbits look at these rabbits they don't make any sound at all and and they're going quack 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 the camera zooms out and it's a, a elevated cage of rabbits and their poop is dropping down into the duck area where the using part of the rabbit pellets as Yeah, they said ducks were eating yeah. the rabbit so, pellets. Some of it or so the quacking rabbits, that was special effect. Right. <laughs> that, was spe- that was amazing special effect. Yeah. What was occurring to me in listening to you guys discuss the fish thing and then what Jocelyn brought up about the other intensive animal raising is that, and you, about the cardboard, I was thinking about your cardboard comment, Paul, and if we're, if we're, using like carbon and hauling cardboard somewhere to do sheet mulching that makes no sense to me but if we have a waste supply of it right there and we can use a waste product on site then why not so if we've got nutrient pollution of some kind or bug problem of some kind that fish can help with and maybe this is your aquaculture difference is that if we use a stocking rate of fish to where they are using up that what would be waste or work and turning it into resource and the actual meat that you get from the fish is a bonus yield as opposed to trying to push your luck and push your productivity per cubic meter in the case of fish. Right. And 
And that is your goal, and then you're putting these inputs of pumping and food and all these artificial things into it. So maybe is that part of the difference of what you're talking about, that using fish in a system to take care of pests or nutrient excesses, to use a waste as a resource, that would be a site-appropriate stocking level of fish as opposed to setting a goal and saying I'm going to raise 200 pounds of fish and putting in all of these extra inputs into it. So now at, at, you, you just said um, five minutes worth of stuff and I want to comment on the first 10 seconds and, and that is, is that you said if the cardboard is already there why not? And so then, and, and I've mentioned this, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure, in several podcasts in the past, and, and my reasons for why not are how, how the paper is created. So cardboard is actually like a, layer, uh, like a dozen layers of paper, maybe even 15, 20 layers of paper. And so then if we focus just a moment on, on just newspaper, and let's just, let's just pretend we get the newspaper and it doesn't even have any ink or tape or anything like that on it. It's just the paper. You know, I, I, while I think that there's all kinds of problems with the inks and the tapes and, and, and the glues and stuff like that, let's just focus for a moment on, the, on just the paper. And that is, how, how do we make paper in 2011? And um, there are ways where you can take a, a tree and munch it up, and, and, and it, it, it'll basically make paper with nothing but water and tree. However, that costs more than using chemicals. And so then the chemicals that will extract the lignans from the wood so you can get the goopy goo to make the paper, then, um, I mean, basically when you go buy a paper mill, what do you smell? And, and it's the, it's the, it's, that's, that's the stuff. That's the goopy goo. That's the chemicals to get, it, to get the lignans to come out in order to be able to make that, that paper. So um, uh, we've got a long, long thread on Permies talking about using uh, problems with using cardboard and newspaper uh, in, in gardening systems as, as a mulch. And uh, somebody out on Facebook sent me something, and it was this huge, long thing, which he gave me permission to copy and paste in, where it, it went into a lot of the details about a lot of the chemical things. And it comes back to this thing where, you know, I think the most important thing is 70% of the permaculture experts, 70% of all permaculture culturalists uh, think it's totally cool to use newspaper and cardboard in your mulches, and that includes Mollison and Lawton. Uh, Paul Stamets does it. Um, uh, uh, Sepp Holzer does it. Uh, so a lot of the biggest and greatest uh, in the industry uh, fully support it, and yet there's 30% of us that are not comfortable with it. And, and my personal stuff within the permaculture world is I'm seeking the stuff that's like where I mean, there's there's things where it's like, okay, you got that carrot to grow, man. That was that was a toxic waste dump, and you got carrots to grow there. That is amazing because you grew those oyster mushrooms there and stuff like that. And that is an act of permaculture. Only that's not the kind of permaculture I'm looking for. I'm looking for the stuff where it's like we took this untouched land and we nudged a little bit, and we got not just carrots but super carrots. And now if you come and you eat this stuff, all your cancer and all your other diseases just fade away. And so this is a this is a different type, a different style that I'm shooting for. 
Okay. So then we talked about the it's, fish. And the topic here was urban permaculture, and that's definitely not untouched land. And we do have all of these waste streams and work and pest problems and what have you that come from our untouched land in the urban environment. And so if we can use those and get a yield out of those without contributing more to the problem, I... Okay, well, you know, people are buy organic food. Why do they buy organic food? Because, you know, there's a lot of them. I would say more than half the people who currently buy organic food buy it because the other stuff makes them sick. And and it's like and so now they're 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 becoming more and more sensitive all the time. So now they're they're turning to their own yards because even the organic food isn't that good, and they want to grow something better. And so I want to help. I want to get a grip on this and help these people find it. So then it's like then they get to the point where it's like, do I use cardboard or don't I use cardboard? And if, if they are somebody where uh, certain you know non-organic food makes them sick, I'm going to say. Don't use the cardboard. And then when we start talking about the the whole thing with the fish and how to raise the fish, I think that this is a space where there's a lot of unknowns, and it's true. You can get the fish to come out of the system, and I'm a big fan of waste products from one system being the inputs to the next system, but not you know, that way has problems for me. There are other ways. And we saw them in this video. We saw another way. That pond that that uh, swimming pool thing which was really a pond that was fancified up a bit that comes into my comfort zone now Jocelyn's itching to say something well I was just going to try and say I mean I don't think um, I think the cardboard you know, segue was a little a little sidetrack. I think Leisha's point was more about building, even in an urban system, something that's a little bit more sustainable um, or self-sustaining, something where, you know, if you have enough fish that they have enough natural food and you don't have to manage it quite as intensely, you know, more like the swimming pool we saw that was converted to a pond. Or she's thinking if you're balancing it, she's talking about closing loops and making sure the loop are manageable and a little more natural and and to her part of closing the loop is you know limiting your waste stream you know if you're tracking all these inputs on whether the inputs are cardboard whether the inputs are mulch whether the inputs are things for your aquaponic system or 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 a bunch of alfalfa that you're trucking on to feed the rabbits that are in hutches you know she's talking about having more natural systems where that are self-supporting and self-sustaining so uh, yeah, and, and, and the cardboard just ended up being right, one, the very of your, one of your pet topics. Well, well, and she said it in the first ten seconds. Uh, now, 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 I'm I'm going to address what she just said. I've got the recording contraption. I control the show. All right. So, um, uh, yes, and at the same time, you're using the word natural, and I'm not seeing natural. I'm seeing more unnatural. Sure. And I'm thinking that, yes, this system could work really great on something resembling the space station, or, you know, we could set it up on Mars to work or something like that. We can create, it, we can get it to work in some environment that's totally separated from nature. And, I mean, like, I'm not even a big fan of greenhouses because they're so separated from nature. And, and yet this is, like, even going beyond. This is going well beyond greenhouses. So, yes, no, it is. A, I, I think it, when I look at it, I see a novelty that does work. And look, those fish lived. 
and so now you can eat the fish that barely lived and um, and look those plants actually grew there and they don't look as good as the stuff outside but you could eat them and not die um, and so to me it's like I, I look at these things and I and I kind of think like like these are this is you could you do get to technically call this food. The USDA could step right up and say, "Oh, uh, that's food. You can eat it." And and it's like that's not meeting my level of what I want from my food. Right. And and so I want something much higher. So so no, it works. It it does work, and it's impressive. It's a novelty, but it's not. I want more, and that's just me. But I'm different from most of the other permaculture people. I'm gonna keep waving the aquaponics flag, but I think it can address all of those concerns. And obviously, we don't have time right now to do a full aquaponics podcast. <laughs> but I yeah, let's get back to urban. More informed people about aquaponics than myself, I think, can address all of those concerns and you know get your whole happy cows make happy cheese aspect of aquaponics satisfied. <laughs> So that there are happy fish in a healthy system and it's not dependent on plastics and artificial inputs. I think it all could be done in a natural system, excluding maybe the pump. She have a good right, and, and you're still talking about something that's like, okay, now we're going to shell out a bunch of and I, I saw a video once where they were shelling out just like 500 bucks and they had a massive aquaponic system and I thought well that was interesting they did it for 500 bucks so <laughs> you buy 50 pounds of fish for under 500 bucks well and, and it's like no you could you could probably buy 50 pounds of fish for under 100 bucks and the USDA would stamp it as okay for you to eat and and it's like um, I I'm, I'm I think I think it does get into a complicated space I'm I'd be I would like to be convinced of this so, but like you say, it's it's for another time. So to, to bring this back to the urban permaculture topic, my my point about that really was about scale, was about questions of appropriate scale and urban environments are anything from the balcony that he showed in the one example that he was touring and that you talked about, Jocelyn, in your your condo, to that last one, the perma blitz, where. We kept looking at each other and going, oh, wow, this place is bigger than we thought at first. And so when we're talking about urban permaculture, I think questions about scale and inputs or using, you know, closing these loops become really, really central. I, I, you know, and when you're saying that, one of the things that it reminds me of is that um, as we're watching the video, I'm thinking Jeff Lawton is a far more polite man than I will ever be. That's why he'll he might get a television show and I never will. Uh, <laughs> Yours would be the Hell's Kitchen version. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck have you done here? Who are you thinking of feeding this? Just some ants? It would. It would. So I, you're right. He went. He looked at some systems that were really small, and a lot of the systems that we saw pictures of, I was kind of thinking, you call this permaculture? <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, man, Jeff is a polite man. I I would not be that that kind. But uh, um, okay, so <clears throat> what what did I miss out of your point there? No, we're good. We're good. Too off, too far off topic. Well, the next thing on my list, where I I enjoyed a couple of his examples. I enjoyed that one gray water system with all the reeds and the ponds. That was good. 
and 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 the reeds were just so massive and he was talking about how you you know not only are they filtering the water and how the water moved you know the flow was mitigated and moved throughout the landscape and cleaned but then you could use the reeds as mulch and he was talking about you know then you ended yeah. up having a surplus in your system and it right. was stacking functions that you know, was great the number one problem i have with gray water systems at least around in this area and and especially in montana is winter and and in which case all those reeds and all those things are dormant and they're not eating up all that you know gunk and and so but there i imagine that stuff is active all year long and so gray water systems are really brilliant there and we saw them looking so rich and lush yeah i think most of the gray water people around here advocate installing a little y pipe or whatever with a shutoff so that for two or three months in the winter you're just operating on a standard urban system but um, I can't speak to whether or not the reeds die over the winter and all those aspects. And, I, and I've seen them where they have that shut off, and I, I wonder whether they're shut off properly or not. And, and I, I, I think a better system, I mean, this is like the one place where I could see a greenhouse being used because right. greenhouses are going to be just uh, a place where they're set aside from nature so everything goes wrong in a greenhouse unless you're, like, out there really working it. And I kind of feel like, well, but if it's just a gray water thing and you got all your gray water plants in there, let it go wrong. Mm-hmm. How how wrong can it go? And and so then, yeah, just keep routing all your stuff out there for the for the greenhouse. And it's like not nothing you're going to eat or anything. As long as it's green and lush and jungly in there, they'll keep going and processing all that stuff. Yay! I guess that's my question is I haven't looked into this in depth, and it's a good question. And this time of year, I'm going to go look now at some natural systems and what are they doing in the winter. What is there growing? I mean, there are some evergreen things growing in in winter. Well, they're green in winter. Ponds, yeah. How much are they doing? I mean, in in spring, that's not when ponds are smelly and nasty. So I think just like roots of terrestrial plants do a huge majority of their work in fall and winter that is not something we are privy to being above ground, I think that may be the case in natural pond and wetland systems too. And that's something I'd like to look at more and see what what is the role and the function of winter in those systems. Is there something we can learn from for gray water systems there? Well, here in the Seattle area, you can go to the Arboretum and see the winter garden. And so then there's, they have a variety of species of plants, which actually do that's terrestrial. Uh, uh, they they do a lot of their work in the winter time. I mean, they actually literally bloom yeah. in the winter time. Yeah. And so I think there are some examples. But my impression is, and I'm willing to be open to the idea that I could be wrong, although I believe I'm not. Uh, my impression is, is that most plants are dormant in the winter. So when we see them have, they have no leaves, or even the ones that do have that keep their needles or leaves in the winter they're they're still dormant and they are effectively inactive and the roots are going to require uh um, sugar in order to continue going on and if they don't have the sugar they're they're taking what sugar they've stored in the roots and trying to hold on to that for the big spring push is that but you don't think that's the case you think that they are 
active, even more active in the winter than they are in the summer? I'm saying that in a system where water and muck are buffering temperature extremes underneath a woodland, a, a wetland sort of system, that there may be things that we haven't looked at carefully yet enough, that nature's imagination is a whole lot better than ours. And I'm just saying that it's an interesting thing to go look at winter wetland and bog ecologies, what is really going on there. It's not something I've looked at and I'm curious about now. I do think that a lot of bacterial stuff is still going on, uh, bacterial, maybe even some fungal, is, is still very active, which is why it's easier to build soils inland than it is here. Right. You that know. may be true. And I know even in my goat pen, in the, the bedding pack, the deep bedding pack in, in my goat pen, in the winter, it. I mean, you can just open it up. And I mean, in one handful, there's like 50 worms. I don't know. I haven't counted them. I'm not that nuts. But <laughs> it's just chock-a-block full of worms in the winter moisture. And in the summer, they're all gone when it's dry. You know, they're somewhere else. So I don't know where they come from and go to necessarily, but I think there are things that go on in winter that we are not privy to unless we go digging and looking. And, I'm, you know, the way we look to natural systems for models in permaculture, I just think that's a question that we could look for more information on. But that is a, that is a good point you make about the different um, locations and climates. Here he was talking about gray water systems in the tropics or subtropics, and, and that's, you know, in the temperate climate or colder climates, inland climates, you may want something different. But then he also had lots of good examples of predator habitats in yeah. the different urban designs. Do you I, like that? I really like that he took that into account. Um, spiders, he talked about lizards and frogs were the ones that I picked up on. And uh, I, I really like that he was talking about harnessing those natural predators that are going to be there and do the job for you anyways, so you might as well create the habitat and have a better ecosystem as a result and deal with less pests. And he also our, you know, our biggest pests in the urban environment here, of course, are like slugs and raccoons. And that was one thing in all those water systems and frogs and things like that. I mean, what's the predator wreck for raccoons in the urban environment? Yeah, in, in Australia. <laughs> They're all over Seattle. Well, he's, he's thinking about, well, like, what about Australia? So she's thinking, like, what's the raccoon in Australia, right. and um, but I, I, I kind of thought that there was a, a, a one of the neat things is in almost all the shots you could hear these birds in the background that you don't hear here, and and so uh, I, I thought that was kind of uh, kind of fun actually. Well, and he did mention the birds just in passing once, but I think he felt you know that it's obvious that the birds would just be in in, in almost any system, so he didn't mention those as much. But I think like the rock pile for the lizards. I mean, you've had videos talking about rock piles for snakes, which do help with the slugs in our area. So, yeah. Right. And um, uh, speaking of birds, um, uh, I saw a lot of bird things I didn't like. And um, uh, with like fowl, like fowl, domesticated bird stuff. So, um, uh, and so he did. He had the quail pen. It was the first one I wrote down, quail pen. Yeah. And and um, uh, he, he, the pens just looked small. It's like they're they're sitting around in the straw. They're not out on the greens. Yeah. They're not up. It's not 
well, and of course, he, he did. We we saw some imagery in something where he had a paddock shift, well, not a paddock shift system, but a pen system, a portable pen system, and um, a lot of the stuff. But I think that was like previews for some of his other movies or something. Yeah, part of the TV pilot. Yeah. Can I ask, Leisha, you yeah. have some form of the paddock shift system going on in a smaller environment and for chickens, am I correct? Yes. And could you That's talk right. about that briefly? Because I've read Paul's version, but I want to hear about the smaller version. Sure. And so um, I do a lot of what Paul talks about, and I started just using, like, um, puppy, they call them X-pens, right. which are these folding. Right. Yeah. And I started just using those to section off. I started them actually sectioning the chickens out, <laughs> and it grew to sectioning the chickens in different areas. And so they're not hard and fast pens. They're all movable, movable paddocks. And according to the season and how much growth there is, I leave the chickens in constantly varying and changing paddocks depending upon the need. And so it's not a... If there's a formula, it's, and I, I think, Paul, you might have mentioned it, or maybe I picked it up from somewhere else. It was like when 30%, maybe it's a Salatin thing, when 30% of the forage is gone, you should move them on, depending upon what you're trying to accomplish, of course. And so I have some rough estimate there. And in the case of my lawn, where it's pretty much straight grass, you know, I want them to eat it down pretty good. And part of Paul's objections to chicken tractors is that they wind up eating toxic plants and all that. Well, they're not doing that in the lawn. So um, there, I think the renewal of the lawn actually works really well. And I, I have this absolute like, nanoscale pasture poultry. <laughs> So about how big is your system, how big is each individual section, and how many right. could you kind and of go Right, and that's why I'm saying, no, it's not a recipe, oh, okay. Right. that it's, it's needs and yields driven, okay. and very much seasonally driven, so... Do you have a sacrifice area? Um, yeah, it's the, that would be the compost area. So if there's <laughs> nothing, good sacrifice area. If there's nothing that, that's like the default, if nothing needs... But there's nothing mowing. to be eaten. Right. If there's nothing that's at that stage that needs the chickens eating it, then the paddock becomes the composting area, and they turn the compost and get bugs. Yeah. And so I advocate a, a sacrifice area for whenever you don't – like for any place where there's winter – you know, and and uh, as well as for any time when you have more animals than will fit on your land, and and so then basically you have one area that's going to be like, well, this is like the old coop and run, and they're just gonna there's going to be nothing green there for them to eat for a certain amount of time. But then for uh, half the time or three quarters of the time, then yeah, they go out and they get to be in the green area and experience the full awesomeness of the paddock shift system, um, and, and and just. Like like, just like squirrels, you know, they'll come exactly when the fruit is ripe. The chickens are incredibly good about knowing when the compost is just perfect for, like, maximum bugs and activity and stuff. So the absolutely fresh compost, they kind of leave it alone a little bit. It's that medium compost. And they disassemble. Chickens are amazingly destructive, just amazingly destructive. <laughs> and they disassemble those compost bins and those compost piles. I don't know what those little chickens do. But just about the time they've dismantled the whole thing it's all turned and pretty much ready to go on as half finished compost mulch 
onto a garden area. So I appreciate what they do in that area. Um, he also had rabbits and hutches, which I was not keen on. Um, I just kind of am uncomfortable seeing an animal in a cage like that, um, as as well as, like, you know, the quails were effectively in a cage like that. And, well, and he was talking about, oh, rabbits love weeds. You can feed them your weeds. But, again, I'm thinking that's, you know, that's a labor-intensive system. Yeah, yeah, and they love weeds, so why don't you let them out of the cage so they can eat the weeds? Yeah, if you feed them weeds. That means you're the one that has to pick and decide what the weed to give it to them. Oh, very good point. Very as opposed to them using their instinct to select what's the most nutritious for them. You're saying I'm smarter than you, stupid rabbit. Here's what you need to eat. It is my waste product. Right. I'm saying it from a selfish point of view. Of I don't want you eating certain things in my garden. But the flip side is that might not be what they're supposed to be eating. Ah, like okay. Well, so, I, I like both sides of it. Well, the other piece of it too is is a lot of permaculturists uh, don't have many weeds or something that they want out. Um, they want to leave the dandelions as nitrogen fixers. They want to leave a lot of the plantain or a lot dandelions of aren't nitrogen fixers. Oh but well, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. Anyway, sorry. You know, nit- calcium fixers. You can call them calcium fixers. Thank you. Wrong thing. They're nutrient Nutri- accumulators because that. they have deep tap roots and bring minerals up, especially in our. That's the N word. That's the yeah. N word. I meant. Nutrient accumulators. Yeah. Nutrient, <laughs> nutrient fixers. Yes, very good. Dynamic Nature. or nutrient accumulators. Yes. That was the word. So now that I'm red in the face over my permaculture faux pas. You'll never recover from it. Oh, that's it. I'll never recover. So, but really, I mean, what is a weed in in a permaculture system? I mean, would you be pulling the dandelions and feeding them to the rabbits? Probably not. When I've had my place on tours, edible garden tours or whatever, I mean, I put a pretty prominent sign when people come in, welcome, and there are no weeds. Please don't help. Yeah, good one. There are no weeds here. Please don't help. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing I saw that made me uncomfortable was, um, and was were those railroad ties that we saw? Yeah. In the community garden, it looked like it. It was a little hard to tell. Tires. I I think he just, you know, had time to focus on the positive aspects of all the gardens. Yeah. He didn't want to spend time. He was being very kind and generous and pleasant. He was being not me. <laughs> well, I, I think the ethics of some of those things are different in different places in the world, too. And he was highlighting the reuse and, yeah. and right. recycling of things. And, and some of that I thought was great. Some of the reuse of stuff was like bricks. He was a lot of good bricks. A lot of bricks. A lot of awesome brickage. But the tires and the um, uh, railroad ties, I was like, oh, I would take those out first thing. I mean, and... In fact, I might not even use that piece of land because there were once railroad ties there. The, the, uh, this is a little off topic from where you're going with that, but he really likes manured deck water. Oh, yeah, that's true. He really that's... likes it. I mean... <laughs> yeah. yeah, a glass full a day does something different to you. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's probably a great weight loss program. <laughs> when I toured the Bullock back in August, uh, Douglas Bullock talked at length about how you know how they were using the uh, the, the duck pond, whatever you want to goo, call it. goo, the duck goo, as uh, uh, great stuff. So, uh-huh. 
There are lots of fans yeah. of that duck stuff. There, there are, although um, I would much rather see the ducks in a much larger pond. I mean, I, to me, it, it seemed filthy, and I didn't, I didn't like it. Um, and that was, but you know, when you're in, in an urban setting, it's like I don't know. Do you make sacrifices and just get on with it? But I think it, you know they had that swimming pool thing, and it's like, no, oh, they could have put a couple of ducks in there, and it wouldn't have offended me. But instead, they had something that was like three feet across, and it was just full of shit. And it was. Point like, I saw a bathtub, and another point I think I saw a sink, and I don't know if it was part of the same garden, and if the sink was the only source of water for them. But I, yeah. Mom. Just, well, and I thought his point about the duck water and what looked like this dirty little pool of theirs was that you use it regularly, and so it gets you use the dirty water and it gets added clean water regularly. Right. If it were used, like, every day or twice a day, then the water would remain so clean yeah. that it would then move into a, a space where I would be comfortable. But then, but then it what, wouldn't be high-nutrient duck muck either. Well, I don't know. I think the what stuff five, at the bottom would be. Five or, they had five or six ducks. I would yeah. think five or six ducks in one day could make that nutrient-rich water. <laughs> yeah. 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 There you go. But then again, it's... Into the phrase <laughs> duck soup. It, it, it seems to me like that's one area where it's moving away from permaculture. Now you get all this duck shit in the bottom of the, the thing over there, and then he's sucking it out, let us suppose, every day. And then he goes out and he waters his garden every day. And I'm thinking, you know, culture. You put in a big culture bed, and then you never have to water it, and you're not having to do anything every day. And and so, um, to me, it's like one of those things we talked about where it's like it seems like there's additional work. And and um, the other thing is, like, let's say you have to take that, you have to suck out the, the shit from that duck water every day. Are you going to do it in the wintertime, too? And and some of the people that sign up for something every day, they end up putting it off a couple of days once in a while, or they put it off a week. And then it's like, you know, it's, and then who suffers? It, it's the duck. And and it bothers me. And and so, um, you know, and again, Jeff Lawton just seems to be at somebody else's place, and he's putting the four-color brochure on it and being a really nice man. And, um, and and I, I'm not the same. So uh, the other thing I saw that bothered me was we saw um, some tank gardens, which were lovely, except for the part where they were using galvanized tanks. And um, I just remember, like, I remember being in high school, and I was going to a science fair, some regional science fair. I had something that was worthy of going to a regional science fair. And then one of the other guys that was on the bus with me uh, going to the regional science fair, his his presentation had to do with uh, the toxicities in soils next to galvanized buildings. And and so I've always tried to, tried to keep galvanized stuff away from the soils because of this science fair presentation that my friend uh, had going on. I wish I could remember his name. Um, uh, frequently used for water tanks. 
It is, and that bothers me too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so um, it's it's like I I would prefer to see something more natural, something that's going to be. I mean, I, I do think that you know if if you can have a pond. What, what would you use instead? I I think ponds and creeks are a great way to fly, and and it's like you got to you have to manage them appropriately so they don't turn into big muddy bogs of yuckiness. Well, you're talking about water storage, right? And then we, we can talk about water storage. He was just showing off raised beds that look nice in, in those particular gardens. So um, that's true. Okay, that's true. So this is a raised bed thing. So this is soil on galvanized material. Right. So that I've heard, you know, and that's another thing, too, is we're talking, if you talk about these are horse tanks that are designed to be water on galvanized material, which I think isn't going to be as problematic as soil on galvanized material. But I don't know that for a fact, just a suspicion. Well, it's but, pretty easy to find out by observation on that. I mean, a galvanized water tank for livestock will last decades with very little corrosion. Corrosion means that there's something electrochemically happening there. You put soil in those galvanized tanks, you get corrosion. The nutrients and ions in the soil are interacting with the metals, and there are things happening. Now, how bad that is, how good that is... That's All a different I'm, question, but definitely it's different with water or soil. So what I'm saying is is that when we saw those, they did look pretty and all, and at the same time, they bothered me. And and so I'm not – in fact, I don't think Jeff Lawton's going along. Would you rather have he's like showing, plastic? He's showing – he's doing a tour of different gardens and saying, look at the – and he's trying to be – to me, it struck me as like he's trying to be very, very polite. I've not ever seen Jeff Lawton construct something like this. I've never heard of Jeff Lawton constructing something like this, but he is trying to like be a good host or whatever and point out, okay, look at what they've done and, they've, and it's beautiful, and then move on. And that's come to you for the for the beware of all. Of <laughs> well, and and all of the designs, I think, well, the majority of them showed really tight plantings, optimized space, and and it was when they were designing that one lot we were talking about with the perma blitz where he said you know, as I mentioned before, that you should have completely occupied spaces, no no niches where other things can come in that you don't want them to. So that I thought was impressive to see um, because we've seen some things that are supposed to be permaculture, but it's, you know, bare dirt plants, bear dirt, you know. And all, the monoculture, the yeah. raised beds with monoculture, right. Right. intensive inputs, gravel paths. Right. Yeah. So these, and they're calling it permaculture. Yeah. So all of these sites, even if they had the galvanized tanks or those uh, recycled tires and stuff, at least they looked more permaculture, more guild-esque. There was at least polyculture. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's there true. Full yeah. of polycultures, the vast yeah. majority of it. Now, I remember one place that they were at, he was talking about something, and I can't remember what it was, but, but it's like in the background I saw a fence. And, and oh, yeah, but the thing that is, fence was cool. I, I go to so many gardens and farms and stuff, and and I, people get really pissed off at me because I'll walk away from their place and not pull out my camera. And they're like, you know, oh, I've got the place. And it's just like, I don't see anything there that's interesting. And so I'm thinking that if I was at that place, the thing that would have been the point of interest would have been that fence. And so basically what we saw... You know, like and it, for aesthetic reasons? Well, 
Now, now you're pointing out that it may have been put together with screws. I didn't see the screws, uh, I, but, I but what I did see, see was is it was something. It was a fence that was clearly made out of materials from that area. I mean, yes. you could yes. see the bushes like had the same kind of sticks on them that were used in this fence. And I'm thinking I wanted to get a closer look at that fence. And you were you were concerned that it well, might be screws, but it's like, well, you know what? You could still make that same fence with lashing or something. That's what I was saying. Is I, I think there were screws, but it is a nice looking fence, and I think all of the wood was coppice. You know, you could still see the bark on the branches, I believe, from what I could tell. Yeah, high-definition videos, so we were able to look close up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and so I'm, I, but I, I was thinking that's, that's the story on that particular plot, but we never did go into it. In the meantime, he's saying things that it just, it just seemed to me like appealing to the level two people, you know? I think he was talking about manure deck water about then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably, probably. Isn't it interesting how so many of the gurus, they have their panacea for everything. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a guru by any means, but I'm, I mean, I'm guilty of the same thing. It's like I was saying, goat, 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 goat. My goat, goat guild. Where's the goat? There's a, yeah. there's a remarkable shortage of goats in this video. <laughs> <laughs> this video is fucked up. It doesn't have enough goats. Doesn't have any goats. Not one goat. This video sucks. There's one in the preview about another video. There was a picture of a goat eating something. But <laughs> well, then he had the herb spiral, the obligatory permaculture herb spiral. Yeah, everybody's nuts about the herb spiral. Well, the whole, the whole video is really just a big taster for what you can do on a small property that, you know, using common permaculture tools and, and using overall permaculture concepts. And that was my takeaway is if you've read Guy's Garden or other design books or if you've read books like Urban Homesteading that are talking more nuts and bolts of how to install gray water or this particular cool thing. This is really a nice video representation of a lot of things that I've read about extensively, but I, I haven't necessarily seen them in person. And so that was really a takeaway for me was I got a lot of inspiration by seeing a few things in video that I've only seen in pictures or read about. And uh, seeing them in practice without having the ability to tour a bunch of other urban homesteads was really, that, that was the big value of the movie for my personal uh, level. And I think if you were trying to turn somebody on to the cool things that could be done with permaculture and they were willing to sit down, this would be a good video to show. I, you know, and, and I think I want to say similar things after I'm done bitching about all the things on my list. But it's a very good point. You've got more? I've got more. I've got another page. Oh. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've got page two what? here. But, uh, so the next, the next big thing, oh, you're starting to hit the hooch? <laughs> is, is that a hooch in there? May I drink my glass of wine yet? You got, you got your hooch? Okay. Thank you. Uh, a thing, a thing that I saw that I really liked was when they had uh, that school yes. for kids uh, with uh, challenges, mm -hmm. and um, they built huge raised beds mm -hmm. on cement. 
Yes. And um, uh, and then bricks. they were using bricks for the borders, yeah, and it was a very keyhole. Yeah, yeah, no mortar. Um, and but but the thing I thought was is that it was keyhole. But I, I thought, okay, first of all, the cement that they built on top of they didn't dig up the cement; they just left it in place. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the big thing was is that uh, that's very aged cement. So anything that's going to make your growy sad is probably been mitigated quite a lot. And um, so it's aged. It's aged cement and an unbroken aged cement. And then they, it's, it was about two feet deep. Wouldn't it, didn't it look like about two, two and a half feet? Yeah, they were deep. Yeah, it was good deep. deep. Yeah. And which, which I think that's a, that's the number one mistake I see people make when they do gardens. I'm making a raised bed garden. Look, it's two inches tall, and it's kind of like that's not a raised bed. That's that's like you made it. You dug a ditch over there. That's like a two inch deep ditch. That's it. So I, I was really impressed with the depth. I thought the depth was brilliant. Definitely doing polyculture, and I was thinking now. There's an example of like a bunch of fucked up cement, and they brought in a big bucket of awesome. And then he made some points about it that were just brilliant. And he was talking about how a lot of these kids would be at home and like, no, I'm not putting that in my mouth. And then at the same time, now they grow it themselves, and then they're like, "Oh, I can't wait until I can put that in my mouth." And and so now they're they're embracing more foods that are are closer to their wholesome state, and as opposed to I eat a Twinkie only diet. I, I just think that this this was this was enormous. This is this is a big big positive step on a great demonstration of urban that I wasn't expecting to see. Right. Well, and the design, too, was was um, rounded. All of it was rounded. Um, oh. Kind of oh, we're yeah. Yeah. Like design. So it was really welcoming. Not and the stupid rectangles that most people do. Yeah, it was it, it was like these these and <laughs> like see, I can't even describe it. It was. It was yeah. beautiful. And the, and the bed Squishy. Yeah, <laughs> and the beds were small enough that children could reach the middle oh, from yeah, each side, which, you know, was brilliant design. I mean, a lot of times those simple little things you he don't emphasized that a lot, the double-reach bed, that you could reach into the middle of the bed from both sides, and he talked about scaling that for the children, that even small children could reach in there. He, he did make a short point also about uh, the walkways between beds being on contour and just wide enough for a wheelchair, and the woman whose property he was working on was a bit older, so I don't know if that's why he mentioned it or not. But The permablitz site? Yeah, the permablitz site, I believe, is the one where he talked about it. And uh, just the fact that by putting the on contour, you've got a flat walkway. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and that he was considerate of wheelchair accessibility on that property was nice to mention. Yeah. Speaking of the permablitz site, there was one comment about the permablitz site, which is as they're designing it, they're like right next to a busy road. Hey, Kane, what's my advice to people who are on a busy road? <laughs> Paul says build a berm. Berm, damn it. Berm it. Berm it, baby. Paul visited my house back in March or April, and we didn't have any plans other than to kind of walk around the yard and talk about it. And it turned into a 60-minute 
uh, berm chat, really. <laughs> and it started out as, you know, I really think a three-foot... berm propaganda? <laughs> it started out as, I think a three-foot berm would really solve your problems, and 15 minutes later, as you know, about a four, four or five-foot berm would really, would really fix this. And by the time he left, he got, you know, seven, eight, right about where the top of that hedge is, I think I'd do the berm to about there. Um, pretty soon I was going to have buried lines, but I'm Paul was with that conversation, but um, but if you are trying to block noise, I've done extensive research on it, and you're not going to do it with plants. It's going to have to be soil or rock or water in one form or another. Okay. So. Yeah, the cement stuff on does, does a fairly decent job, but I think the cement stuff doesn't come anywhere close to what soil can do. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I think a combination of the, well, not cement, but a, a rock or cement uh, combined with soil, if you can get multiple aspects that um, are either reflecting the noise or absorbing the noise. That's the big goal. Burb. Yeah. Burb. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, another thing that he did that bugged me, um, and this was this was on the Perma Blitz project, uh, was that they had a chipper. I had that in my notes, too. I just I wondered about the carbon calculation on that chipper and... I just wondered if there were other ways that that could have been done. And more importantly, another higher yield that could have been gotten from that material, some of the material that they were chipping, whether it's in hugoculture or or, or uh, edible mycology. or I, I just wondered if that was really the highest and best use to spend carbon chipping it for mulch. Yeah, I agree. I just as somebody that needs wood chips right now, uh, and I, I mean this as an innocent question, what would you find not as a better use for that, but than something better than wood chips? Like a what, so, you're, where'd you get your wood chips? Yeah, exactly. I mean, where where did you, Kane, get your wood chips? I'm still looking for them. I want an arborist to drop them off. That's where I'm looking to get mine from. But that's so what is what is your question, to Alicia? So you're saying don't chip them. And so no, so, you, so it's I, not I, like you have a bunch of wood already. Are you going to chop down some trees at your place? No. No. He, no. he said he's yeah. looking for an arborist. Yeah, yeah. And and so in which case the arborist is probably going to bring it to you. Like they, they, they just turn everything to chips. That's just how they do it. Right. right. So, so, so I'm not sure what your question is. I guess my question is, well, um, so the, the reason that arborists have to turn things into chips is because they have to haul them off site right. in some cases. Now, more and more arborist chips are getting a little harder to get because more and more people are understanding the value of them and keeping right. the chips on site. But so my point was not don't use chips. Okay. It's that I think chips are wonderful. My point was default. I don't like any of the knee-jerk reaction defaults. I like us to think about the situation. And that was my question was that seemed like kind of that knee-jerk reaction there to make chips out of everything. And I just questioned at least if some good percentage of it there wasn't a higher and better intermediate yield use for. In the case of arborist chips, they've got to chip them up simply for space. I mean, it's amazing. You can take, you know, a brush pile as big as a house, and it, like, condenses down to nothing when you chip it. And so they have to do that, and then if they can drop them off at your house instead of hauling them to some recycle place far away and spending more carbon, great. I guess I just want a clarification. Yeah, I, I no. think there's a higher 
better used too. I mean, for, for thicker wood, it can be used for any number of things, if not agriculture beds. But uh, the wider branches can be coppice. The smaller stuff can be buried in the garden beds. I think there's a lot of other uses other than just wood chips. But yeah, I just wanted to see. Uh, you know, using full branches or logs in a hugelkultur, I believe, is far superior than using wood chips. Right. And so, you know, um, there's no point in, in spending the, the gas and the noise and all that stuff. Right. But then it's like you could also go into the space of, like, uh, heating your home um, or, you know, using the wood for a variety of building projects. Some of that wood, yeah. I would keep it to, to use it for creating other things. Um, a lot of it in that case was eucalyptus, rot-resistant. It would have made nice raised beds or, you know, trellises or who knows what. Yeah, I, I can just, I just feel like uh, I've never used a wood chipper. Every time I've had mountains and mountains of wood, I've always found mountains and mountains of other uses for it. And it's, and, and that was even before I learned about hugelkultur. And so uh, now it's kind of like, wow, hugelkultur is like the first place I would put it. Now, granted, we're fortunate. Hugelkultur is going to work way better here than it would work there. Um, in fact, Jeff mentioned that when I interviewed him uh few podcasts back, um, and, and how he was basically saying how fortunate we are here, because when summer rolls around, we have these awesome, long, long, sunny days, and just pumping life into our system, and then we get to have a rest in the winter, and so he's like, suddenly, it's like where we are just sounds dreamy, he's kind of like saying, I wish I was there instead of where I'm at, because it sucks here, because we don't really, it's so hard to have soil, you know, so. Well, and I, literally greener. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is a little off topic, but I loved it at Monica's farm, where she showed us what she did with evergreen boughs, where she used them uh, in the muddy winter times in front of her doormat to use evergreen boughs to scrub your boots on, you know, as a first scrub before the Before you get to the house. Yeah. And then she was using them in the chicken, the winter chicken coop, too. And well, uh, even more than that, yeah. she she found that she she t- tried a lot of different stuff to do deep bedding for the chickens and found out that Christmas tree boughs worked better than anything else by far. For, How yeah. big a pieces were for, for bedding for the chickens? She, she chopped them up. you got to go look at my video, Laisha. I have a video about it. They were still very branchy, but, you know, like just little sections. Like just Six little, inches of foot? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't think there's anything probably longer than a foot. Right. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, I've got uh, one last thing, one last note, right. and that is that that compost tumbler they had was awesome. Now, now I've 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 gone through a few compost tumblers in my day. I think three. I've used three different compost, and they were all the most giant compost tumblers that you could get in the United States commercially. And I'm, I think that the thing that we saw must have been custom made or something, but it was far larger. Yeah, but the, they said it was for a community scale, community garden scale. Yeah. But the, the key is, is that in order to get good compost and to get it to be a good heat, it needs to be big. I mean, it needs to be at least four feet across, you know, to get a good heat going on the inside. Those compost tumblers, I think, are like only two and a half feet, or maybe they're three feet. They're they're like just a little bit too small. So that one, I was looking at that, and yeah. Now, on the other hand, uh, in a a more rural environment, then the thing is, is is that I tend to not use any 
compost at all. I end up not having a way. All the materials get used up before they can get to a compost pile. But in an urban thing, then yeah, the, the worm bins, the compost piles, all that stuff, it, it does seem like I, I end up using that. Although Ruth Stout's techniques say don't do that. That's a waste. So now Lacia's going to pop if I don't move the recording <laughs> contraption over by her. Oh, I was jumping up and down because you said something about compost and heat, and that just reminded me at the very beginning, it might have even been one of the previews, or maybe it was at the beginning of this. I can't even remember now. It was very early on. I think it was at the beginning of this. There was something about him heating up hot water and through a compost pile yes. that I thought was brilliant, and I would like to see that part again. Man, it would be great if somebody had a video about that on I YouTube. Like I, I feel like I've seen one of a guy in Washington <laughs> to heat all of his showers for many months. I think there was a guy behind the camera who was giant and wearing overalls. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember that part. You don't remember that part? Okay. All right. I was there. <laughs> oh, wait. Hey, I have a video about that. Well, I was wanting more than a video. I was wanting, <laughs> like, an actual, like, you know, diagrams and look at it and measurements. And the best part is it's super simple. It's just a pipe, and you put the compost end lower and put a huge hot compost pile on it, and then I think the heat rises. Is that the well, basic? He said it was it's heat simpler, hot, simpler hot than that. for a shower for six to eight weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay. Here, here's here's what Brian Kirkbliet did up in Bellingham for the video that I made, which it's exactly the same thing that they were showing in there, only this had a naked man. So if anybody, if there's any women or, or gay fellas out there that are looking for a video, this had a naked man in it. Okay, so go buy the video, and then you'll see the naked man. All right, uh, but, but basically uh, what, you know, what Brian Kirkbliet did is that he spent an hour and a half gathering up compostable materials. He had half-inch poly pipe, 100 feet of half-inch poly pipe, and, and it comes in a coil. And so he left it pretty well coiled, but he tried to stuff compostables in between the coils, and then it's buried, and, and then he just put it under pressure, um, you know, from a, from a water hose. And then they got, um, uh, for two months, they got uh, hot, hot showers. When it finally got down to the end of it, it was like putting out water that was only 85 degrees. But but they got basically uh, what they what they believed to be uh, was uh, um, 500 hot showers out of it. And um, I've had some people comment to, to say that that's impossible, laws of physics and all this. And frankly, they're full of shit. No, you can't. Basically, I calculated that you would use all the water out of that coil in about 15 to 20 seconds. Yeah. And so it's it's the water that that comes, and so it's heating it as it passes through the whole pile. Yeah. And I can I I totally get how you can get 500 hot showers out of it. It's common technology. Beer brewers, some beer brewers use it all the time to cool down uh, the wort after it's been hot because you want to get it cool instantly, and they just mm. run coil, hot, cold water through a coiled pipe inside the beer. So it's common and used for a bunch of different things, so it's very believable that a hot version would work for a shower. So that's yeah. like instant tankless hot water, basically. 
The compost version. Yeah. yeah, the compost version. And and um, and so basically he had interns and he had a permaculture design course with 25 students. And um, so... What was the volume of compost in this pile? It's pretty big. I would associate in, in an audio format. Um, we I, I took the video when the pile was at the end of its life cycle and the pile was probably not even two feet tall at that point. It had composted what? down. Um, probably five feet in diameter, something like that. It was it was a small pile. Now you talk about Jean Payne, he had a pile that was ten feet in diameter and ten feet tall. He it was predominantly wood chips and cow manure, and um, he put a cap on it to collect the methane or biogas that came off of it. He used he got hot water out of that for a year and a half. And uh, he, he used the biogas for all of his cooking, and he actually ran his truck on it. So his, his truck was biogas-fueled. Um, now, my impression is, is that he didn't get particularly far in his truck on the biogas, but he did get several miles out of it, like, I'd say like probably 30, 40 miles total for the, for the year and a half, which is, you know, when you add in all the, I mean, he heated his house with it. it. It was all of his heat. And so, I mean, but, but on the other hand, it looked like it took him two days to build the pile. And it was, and it was all chipped wood. And, but I imagine you could optimize that system. In fact, I was kind of thinking, you know, what you need to do is you need to be able to pee on the pile. If you could pee on the pile, you might get another eight months out of it. Well, so if he got what forty miles out of it at ten miles a gallon on a truck, it's maybe twelve dollars worth of gas right now. So that might not be worth the energy until yeah. the water world situation. And biogas doesn't work out to gasoline very well. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, but just the heat. The heat is home, mm-hmm. plus the heat for his hot water. Those two right there is huge, and he got all of his cooking out of it. Yeah. Okay. So those three combined, I think that's pretty that's good. The methane part was worth it. So, but, but okay, and then, and then another thing along those lines that he had in this video was he had a rocket stove water heater. Oh, that looks cool. That was a cool design, too, aesthetically. Yeah. I mean, it looked like sculpture. Yeah, it did. It, it was different. I've never seen anything like it. I, I would want, I I'm basically, after after listening to Ernie Wisner talk about heating water with um, rocket stove technology, I, I probably got about 10 hours of listening to Ernie Wisner talk about it. About 95% of that con- uh, conversation revolves around explosions and boom and dying <laughs> and parts flying, how big of an explosion <laughs> and things. So I imagine that if Ernie Wisner were to look at that, he would he would talk about exploding things. Um, and so I was kind of looking at the design that they had there and I was kind of thinking like, I would want to hear what Ernie has to say about that. Yeah. I, so I think this, again, was an example of him showing how it could be done or that it could be done, not the best way to do it. Right, and what, definitely what he was showing is, and nobody's died yet. <laughs> so, at least on that one. Now, okay, so summary for me, 
I, I'm, th- I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking that uh, here is a, a lovely and polite man who is the master of greening the desert, mm-hmm. being a lovely and polite man, uh, and helping people to move from maybe level one of permaculture to level two or level three in an urban environment of permaculture. So I think, I think most people, a vast, massive majority of people interested in permaculture are going to find this movie to be excellent and and um and i'm i have frustrations about it and i think i hope that when those people are are looking to move a little further down the road maybe they'll listen to this podcast and 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 you know hear some concerns and maybe you know go for some a richer knowledge set at some point but i think that's what my podcasts are supposed to be anyway not for the beginners but for the little bit more you know advanced and and people are ready for me to, to tell about the negative side. I would like beginners to think about the animal welfare aspects that you've raised about the small confinement of some of the animals like you've talked about, as well as what he, one thing he didn't touch on there on there at all was things like rats and raccoons, which when you've got just this massive food system there, you're going to have a rat problem in a good part of the temperate city. <laughs> cities in the world and that wasn't touched on at all so i think that there was a lot there for to introduce beginners a lot of it as jocelyn was saying was very appealing aesthetically appealing and you know joe sullivan always talks about how farms and producing food should be aesthetically and aromatically pleasing right so there was a lot of that that was a nice component for people to start bridging that gap towards permaculture and at the same time then there was all these multi-leveled layers for more advanced thinking i wanted to freeze frame it a number of times and yeah we know <laughs> and, like look at the fence that you wanted to look at and look at some of these ponds and fish and some you know some of these other things. So I, I think it has something for every level, but I do hope the beginners tune into your podcast as well and think about things down the road. So for aromatically pleasing, then, of course, you brought aromatic something or another with you today, a clearly goat. <laughs> I think I think as I – this must be it over here. So this must be goat, goatville that you brought with you. Um, <clears throat> So, uh, yeah, if you, if you love the aromatically pleasing, then you probably will skip the goats. Or at least, no, 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 no. At no, least, no. Oh, oh, wait, clarify. you got at least goat. male goats, the, 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 the older male goats with full horns intact. Those, those guys. It's the opposite end. 200 yards away, 200 yards away, open field with the wind blowing the opposite direction. Well, maybe not the opposite direction. But boy, all right. But as far as I, I think a point that would be great to see Jeff pick up on and do would be the paddock shift systems because I think that I think that we can uh, – like a, a paddock shift system done right is going to be easier than what a lot of people are doing with coop and run Absolutely. or even chicken tractors. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's way better for the animal, way better for the people, way better for everybody involved. And um, it's and it's very simple. And so I just I just I wish to see that happen. And so I, my guess is is that Jeff's just simply not aware of it. And so he's doing.
doing. Basically, uh, the most advanced stuff I've seen him do with chickens is, is more of the Salatin style thing. Uh, he's got portable pins. They look like giant uh, chicken tractors, which he moves. I believe he calls them tractors. And I also believe he, he leaves them in one spot long enough that they've eliminated 95% of the vegetation, which bothers me. But he doesn't now, know. Does that depend on what the vegetation is? I mean, like when I'm doing it on my pure grass, there's nothing toxic there for them, and it is renewing the grass. Well, I'm gonna, I want to say it depends, yes. I mean, like when, when I, I've got some stuff in, um, in my article that, that shows um, Washington State University trial stuff, and they were having the, the, uh, the chickens eaten 90%. And um, but however those were those were on test uh, beds where they they had planted you know uh, it was exactly two crops so it wasn't even a polyculture so it wasn't like a meadow or or a, um, a, a polyculture lawn or um, pasture or anything like that it it was they had like clover and orchard grass or something like that I can't remember exactly what it was but but I remember that both species were like in my okay that's not toxic kind of feeling and so I was okay with that but but it's like um, when when you have them eat 95% even if it is grass you know I'm I, even no matter what 95% of anything they still get to a point where they're standing around in their own shit all day and that bothers me well I guess that's what I was going to say too is that mine aren't in there 24-7 that they're put in there for a couple hours usually yeah I, and then they they're in alternate the alternate paddock or the compost or, you know. I think the chicken tractor thing can work out if they're in the area for a very short time. But, you know, now we're wandering into the yeah. thing. My, so my general summary was thumbs up. Your your general summary was? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Jocelyn? Yeah, thumbs up. I thought um, he gave good examples of some different permaculture principles that were sometimes just more visual examples than they were fully explained. Yeah. Um, and I would have liked some of what he was showing to be more explained, like the polyculture and, and some of that. But, but um, yeah. I'm a little concerned about some of the negatives that we brought up here that people will look at that and say, see, it's proof that that's the way to do it. And, and it does seem like we get a lot of people where they start traveling this road. Oh, I saw this authority do it this way once or, or whatever. Therefore, that must be the way. And there is no alternative. Best takeaway quote from my permaculture design course, and there's plenty, but Douglas Bullock said, just because you've seen it done doesn't mean it was a good idea. <laughs> I like that. I, I keep that with me every day. That's good. That's good. All right. Uh, and, Ken, do you have a summary for this video? I, I, I did a little bit earlier when I, uh, when I, when I talked, but um, I think thumbs up. If, you, if you're working on an urban design, it's absolutely worth it. To watch it, no matter how many things you've read, I, I was definitely inspired a little bit about the use of water in our property, and that was a good takeaway for me, so it was definitely worth the time to watch it. And uh, one thing we haven't mentioned, there's a lot of great graphics. So yeah, the definitely, graphics were awesome. Definitely a great intro to urban uh, permaculture concepts and, and well worth watching. And if you like it and you're interested more, I'd read Guy's Garden and Urban Homesteading. The authors are Eric and another woman whose name I can't think of. But those two books would be the follow-ups to this video if you're really interested in the topic. Yeah, I think I think this is a good one for beginners. All right, any other last comments? We're good? Sounds good. If you like this sort of thing, 
come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about how awesome Jeff Lawton is, <laughs> homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Thank mm-hmm. you.